Hey fellow nerds, welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett, and we're back with Mary Wynn Hyder, um, who has written two books for kids, The Mortification of Fovia Munson and The Losers at the Center of the Galaxy. Mary Wynn and I, if you haven't listened to the last episode, um, Mary Wynn gave like this amazing talk about working in a cadaver lab and how that contributed greatly to I'd say both of the books in various ways Mm -hmm. um but yeah welcome back Mary Wynn thank you thanks for having me back and I'm gonna talk at you now about um one of my research holes I can't wait about is I wanted to talk about this old scientist feud oh my gosh (laughs) by old i mean like early 1800s ornithology brawl um just just throwing shade back and forth amazing Um, so do you know who audubon is Mm -hmm. like i feel like most americans know vaguely of Audubon like even if you're not into birds or birding or anything like that's the name that comes up because there are like Audubon centers and things but you know it occurs to me that maybe what I think I know is not all that there is I know that he I think so I'm going to tell you what I think I know yeah please so I think that he created one of the most comprehensive catalogs of birds that had existed up to that point which included painting them. And that's the thing that I sort of know the most, or like that I think associate with him the most, is like his paintings of all of these birds. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, he, he so Birds of America is by John James Audubon. It is huge. It is, um, I could look up how many, how many paintings it wound up being but it's very comprehensive and um and it sort of it changed ornithology in America I think it could be said like there's a reason his name was everywhere and part of it is just like the incredible like artistry and detail of paintings of birds of America and you could see them like if you google them you could sort of look up what they looked like but then you have to imagine them really big right he had Mm -hmm. them engraved on these plates um so they were actually these huge sort of engraved paintings wow and um the big difference between him and other ornithologists before him was that he sort of painted them in their natural environment in like a lifelike pose, you know, mid-flight or something like that. Whereas before that, other ornithologists would paint birds, just it would just be the bird, you know, or or maybe paint, draw, whatever, illustrate birds being just like very sort of bird white background anatomical correctness Mm -hmm. and I think I mean I don't know I'm not an ornithologist and like I dove into this 
like 30%. <laughs> so I, I don't, there are, there's a lot out there about Audubon. You can read all about him because he's, he's the one you know, you know, and I don't know if his, I think his were anatomically correct too, to a certain degree, but the life likeness of his engravings sort of revolutionized the way people talked about birds. And there also was like a big change in ornithology that perhaps started with Audubon or perhaps Audubon like contributed to a trend that eventually overtook ornithology where it moved from killing birds, stuffing them and like collecting those stuffed birds and maybe drawing them that way to like being interested in birds lives more huh. and like their habits and like you know their flight patterns and stuff like that and that's what modern ornithology is like you know um we don't stuff birds like we we study them that's so interesting so it's like replacing the guns with binoculars yeah yeah and i mean audubon was before all that actually changed Mm -hmm. um like that change really occurred in like the early 1900s and like really into the third 1930s is when like there was this big revolution but audubon did the first thing right which is paint birds they looked like they were doing shit. <laughs> <laughs> was he a painter who loved birds? Or was he a an ornithologist who turned to art to... Like, is there a chicken and an egg there? Yeah. Um, I think he was a painter who loved birds. Mm-hmm. Um, part of his skill as a painter, his skill as a painter was important, I think, to the project. Um, the thing was, like, being a painter was not as prestigious as you would think. (laughs) (laughs) Like, him being a painter, because he wasn't, like, a famous painter, you know? So, him being a painter was, like not a huge deal being an ornithologist that was a huge deal because like back then and this is sort of the crux of of my feud that i want to talk about ornithology was like a gentleman's game like it Mm -hmm. was like it was a an activity of the leisure class you Mm -hmm. had to be leisure enough to devote your life to studying birds Mm-hmm. because there weren't a lot of like scientists paying scientists jobs mm-hmm. so you needed money and also to study birds like you needed to travel um and you also needed to like buy stuff like you needed to buy skins you needed to pay the taxidermist to have your birds stuffed like there was just a lot of uh And also, like, publication was not... Sorry, my voice is going hoarse. Um, 
publication was not like easy. Like not everyone was reading. So you're creating, whatever you write down about birds, like other ornithologists will read it. Right? So it's not Mm -hmm. like for the public in the same way. Uh Um, And we're talking again, we're talking like early to mid 1800s here. So, so here's, here's the feud, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I got into this because my book is set in 1912, but I wound up falling down a hole about like the history of bird ornithology in Philadelphia specifically, because my characters are in Philly. And I learned that like, Philly was like a hotbed of ornithology <laughs> in in the 1700s and the early 1800s. So way before my characters were born. Um, and, you know, back when Philly was still like the center of the country in a lot of ways, because like for a time it was the U.S. capital um, and, you know, the West was like this sort of wilderness right Mm -hmm. so we're talking like colonial and post-colonial times so philly was like this city where there are a lot of rich people and whatever like famous people uh for the time and before audubon there was this guy named alexander wilson and he was the audubon of the day like he was the most famous ornithologist American ornithologist pre-Audubon and he was like he was known as the father of American ornithology and um he painted birds the old way right so he published this huge bird study I forget what it was called it was like similar even titled to birds of America but probably called American Birds like it was something really similar (laughs) I'll put it in the show notes so that's Wilson and I guess what's interesting to me about Wilson is that he wasn't like like he and Audubon had some similarities in that he wasn't a gentleman Hmm. so I'm saying that like birding was a thing of the leisure class that's like everything I read that it was a gentleman's game right but Wilson was like he was a he was Scottish he immigrated to America um he was like a weaver in Scotland but he never really liked being a weaver and like when he got to America he was kind of like I mean he he got arrested in Scotland actually for a poem he wrote about like weaving and like the mill he worked at And it was not a positive poem. (laughs) (laughs) So he gets to America. Weaving is not like a thing he wants to pursue. Uh, He winds up being like a teacher. And he teaches the children of, um, of Bartram, who was like this sort of famous Philadelphia naturalist. And he decides to apprentice himself under Bartram's son, who's an ornithologist. And he also, like, kind of falls in love with, like, the naturalness of, like, the surround, the area surrounding Philadelphia at the time. So Philadelphia was its own little 
city, but like around it, it was all like woods and wildlife and stuff like in Jersey. And then eventually, you know, he becomes involved in ornithology and like paints all these birds and like creates a definitive volume of them. And so that was Wilson, but like he was never rich. Like I I think he was accepted by the ornithology community because he knew so much and was so good. But like I read that he died of dysentery, (laughs) like pretty penniless. So he was always sort of like scrambling I think and even for him like much like for Audubon um a huge amount of his time went to like finding subscribers for his engravings of birds so he would sell these like subscription services the whole world of ornithology like sort of like moved like embraced Wilson Mm -hmm. and a lot of the other ornithologists it seems were sort of old Philadelphia moneyed gentleman, right? And by the time Audubon comes along, he can't get in with the moneyed gentleman in Philadelphia because he's not like a gentleman enough. Poor guy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if your only way to be... It seems so out of proportion i think because birding seems like to 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 use it casually birding seems like now such an everyman thing like anybody can look at a bird and it seems so cruel that it is for him that his access is so limited yeah Yeah, I think that's a really good point. If you boil enjoying birds down to like its most distilled form, which is just like we coexist with with them, we appreciate them. It it seems pretty antithetical to what that is. And it makes me wonder if it influenced his aesthetic. That like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. He, his aesthetic did come first Mm -hmm. um, before, like, When he went to Philadelphia, he had paintings that he brought with. And they were lifelike because he had sort of bounced around. I talked about Wilson's background, but Audubon's background was similar in that he came to America as an immigrant. Um, Not a poor immigrant necessarily. He didn't come there poor. He had like this crazy, he was born in like St. Dominique, to a plantation owner and his mistress. And there's all this stuff about like the mistress was like a quadroon and like some of his siblings maybe weren't white and there was all that kind of stuff. And he wound up getting adopted. So when his dad went back to France, he brought over two of his children, the most like white passing ones. And Audubon was one of them. Wow. Yeah. And renamed him Audubon like he had a different name before and they sort of christened him and whatever and he grew up in France then he moved to Jersey for a little while and he never really like got his footing he lived in Missouri he lived in Kentucky so sort of like southern 
southern midwest i guess or like you wouldn't even consider it the midwest now but back then it was like the (laughs) the fucking frontier you know and Uh and he he worked at a general store he worked at a flour mill at one point he was jailed for bankruptcy um and he eventually sort of found his footing like teaching painting and selling his paintings for real cheap uh not his bird paintings but like selling paintings of like people you know mm-hmm. and so he was gigging <laughs> yep yep At, when you said that when you're like he had a lot of jobs i was like oh i you get it <laughs> i get it i hear you but during all that time like he saw a lot of wild birds and like engaged with birds in the wild and like what does that mean engaged with birds engaged. in the wild well i well it's like sounds like he's wrestling them or something <laughs> i mean probably he was shooting them right okay, okay. back then like there was a lot of just shooting birds getting them stuffed because there were no cameras you know Mm-hmm. So you, you couldn't study birds up close unless you had them in a cage or you they were dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and like telescopes and things like that were like probably primitive or didn't exist yet, you know. So it was like shooting was like you could have argued that it was a necessity. I don't know. But he also like there's a lot of there were a lot of ornithologists who would take one trip down to Florida or they would take one trip to South America. But like taking a trip like that was like, it was the early 1800s. Like it would take a long time. You would be there for a few months, then you would go back. Whereas like he was sort of seeing birds all the time Mm -hmm. and in their natural habitats, right? Like I think... I mean, actually, to paint the paintings he did, he did shoot and kill the birds and get them stuffed. Mm-hmm. And then he posed them. <laughs> so he fucking, like, used pins to, like, move the wings up. <laughs> you know, it, and to make them lifelike. Like, he wasn't, like, a guy who didn't kill birds. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but But he had to have known enough about birds to know what that scene should look like. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of these gentlemen in Philadelphia like didn't, but they won't let him in. Yeah. So then he gets he gets to Philly. Um, he really his passion is is birds. He really wants to paint birds. His wife, his poor wife, was like the breadwinner. Like she was a teacher. She just regularly taught. He had two sons, so he also wanted to like provide for his family. So his wife had some relatives in Philadelphia. So he goes and he takes this trip to Philly, connects with his wife's relatives, and is trying to meet, because Philly, as we know, is a hotbed of ornithology. Right, right. Yep. (laughs) He's trying to meet ornithologists and, like, get in with them so he can, like, become a proper ornithologist. Which happens at, like... Fancy gentlemen's clubs. Yeah. The Academy of Natural Sciences, which um, still exists in Philly. But it's like, I mean, it's nice. It's a nice place, but it's not like 
what the Smithsonian would eventually become, you know, mm-hmm. um, like it didn't, it, it would be interesting to think about if Audubon got in with the Philadelphia ornithologists and became like another Wilson, like became like their hero. Mm-hmm. If like maybe the Academy of Natural Sciences would be like the Smithsonian of today instead of like, because mm-hmm. eventually a lot of his stuff went to New York gentlemen like were affiliated with the academy of natural sciences and they would have like these sort of symposiums and meetings and blah 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 and okay so so then then he meets charles bonaparte who is the son of napoleon's younger brother (laughs) whoa yeah he just Uh like he lives in jersey um (laughs) Napoleon's younger brother was like had a contentious relationship with Napoleon like he didn't really love what Napoleon was doing wow (laughs) and so like eventually he was like in exile like Charles Bonaparte grew up grew up in exile in England and um I forget why he was in Jersey but he went he went to Jersey because they had family there or something and he meets Audubon and he's like, oh, this guy's great. And he sees Audubon's paintings and he's like, wow, that's really different. I'm so into this, you know? Mm-hmm. And Bonaparte was like a different kind of ornithologist. He was really good at like Latin names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he was like a classification guy. He wasn't like a go out in the wild and study birds guy. So he uh-huh. was like a good foil to Audubon. Um, but he mostly studied birds from skins. So much like the body parts you've talked about, like, Mm -hmm. like bird skins were a thing that was like traded and used for like study. Something that I learned on the way to working on losers was that because there's, I, there was a period where there was a, an aquarium that figured a little bit more prominently and now it's just a small piece but I was trying to learn about how aquariums acquired certain animals, or like acquired their fish. And what I learned was that they, you, it is illegal to buy animals, to buy wild animals. And so the way that zoos and aquariums operate is that it's all by trade. And so if you, and that, and that basically the like the pennies of this trade system are jellyfish. What? So like if you you're like, hey, can I have a squid? I'll give you fifty-seven jellyfish. And I'm sure the exchange rate is not correct at all. I'm totally wildly stabbing. But that, like, for aquariums, jellyfish are the, like, petty cash. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that... So the way that you phrased that when you were, like, the... That they would trade skins, like, uh, that it totally put me back in that place of, like, imagining, like, okay, I'll I'll give you, like, what would, you know... (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you. I'll like, give you two seven pigeons for a turkey vulture. Or something. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, that fascinates me because jellyfish are so pretty to look at. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they must reproduce really easily mm-hmm. for them to be pennies, right? Mm-hmm. I would think. Yeah. And I it's mean, fun- it's they- funny to think because they look great in an aquarium. Yeah, like, but also you want to have a ton of them. You're right, you do. Yeah, you want them all to be like pumping around. Because like two jellyfish is way less impressive than, a, I don't know. I should remember what a group of them is. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, that'll be in the show notes too. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah, so so that was Bonaparte's deal. And he was like ex- excited by Audubon. So he's like, okay, I'm going to introduce you to everybody. We're going to get your work funded. Oh. Because so, bon- Bonaparte was a gentleman, right? Mm-hmm. He was Sure. He was related to Napoleon. He was. He eventually became a prince of of a couple like Indi- uh Italian what? places, uh, just by virtue of like papal decree. Like he he Whoa. was a gentleman. yeah. Um, but really, he was just like trying to be an ornithologist. <laughs> he takes Audubon to a meeting of bird people, like gentlemen bird people, and <laughs> um. And he presents his engravings, right? Mm-hmm. Audubon is really insecure about the fact that he doesn't know his Latin that well. Like, he doesn't... He's a guy who's been in the wild. Like, he doesn't really know... He's he's never been, like, classically trained as an ornithologist. Mm-hmm. So he's feeling... He's already feeling, like, kind of defensive and insecure. And... Wilson is dead by this point. Like, Wilson is not oh. even there. Yeah. It's just that Wilson's people are there. Oh. Okay. And, like, George Ord, who is Wilson's biographer, he wrote, like, like several tomes of, of this biography <laughs> of Alexander Wilson, the father of ornithology, totally sneered at um, these lifelike drawings that were brought to him. And he said, I I don't know if Ord was the one who said this, but one of the people said this. I think your work extraordinary for one self-taught, but we in Philadelphia are used to seeing very correct drawings. (gasps) Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a burn. That's cold. It's like you're self-taught, you're like a backwoods, Mm -hmm. like, dude. And we are gentlemen birders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it says George Ord, he questioned his credentials in this meeting and denied him funding. Um, And Lawson, Lawson, sorry, Lawson was another, he was Philly's most accomplished engraver because, (laughs) uh, because Audubon needed to find someone to engrave these plates, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Lawson was the one who was a big Wilson fan who said, I think your work extraordinary for one self-taught. Um, but we in Philadelphia are used to seeing very correct drawings. So, yeah, so that he was snubbed so hard he had to leave Philly. Like, he wasn't getting anything out of Philly except Bonaparte. Like, Bonaparte did continue on and off to, like, support him financially. Like, he wound up subscribing to... I almost said subscribing to his newsletter. <laughs> Subscri- <laughs> <laughs> subscribing to his, to getting his plates, you know, mailed to him or whatever. <laughs> but he, Audubon eventually went 
to find funding in an engraver in England where they were like obsessed with these drawings of birds in the wild in like America where things were wild and crazy. And, you know, he really took off there. And that's, that's where he became a really big deal and where how Birds of America got funded. Um, wow. Yeah. And, That's and fascinating. Then, and then he was able to come back to the U.S. and, like, be a big fish, you know, mm-hmm. and support his family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the sad thing about this was, um, like, Ord who turned him down the first time constantly like he could never get behind Audubon even as he got famous like he publicly accused him of plagiarism as one point the Academy of Natural Sciences eventually elected Audubon as a member but Ord like refused to vote like he wasn't there for the vote um and Bonaparte wound up having a really contentious relationship with Audubon because, like, they were just two big egos. Like, they didn't stay friends. They were, like, frenemies. Hmm. Like, they would be friends and then they would have a fight. (laughs) And at one point it would be, like, I'm going to link to this in the show notes, too, because there's, like, this... There's this this very detailed (laughs) page online that details all of... The relationship between Bonaparte and Audubon and all of the fights they had. Mm -hmm. It's great. I mean, it's really long. (laughs) (laughs) So you can read about it. (laughs) Like, what's the source for that? I mean, I feel like that really (laughs) is going to affect, like, um, whose side of the story? (laughs) Like, like, uh... Yeah. Was there a third person who was like, I'm just I'm just watching all of these um fights happen like in in public? Or was it one of them who was like keeping a journal and was like, Bonaparte was a dick to me again today? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, um I'm fascinated by the record keeping of this too. <laughs> yeah, this this article it was written by William S. Reese, who's a collector. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sourced through letters. So it's all, it's all the letters they wrote to each other. (laughs) Perfect. And also the, the letters they wrote about each other to other people. (laughs) Because they'll say in their journals, like, I was received warmly by Audubon, or I was received warmly by Bonaparte. And then Mm. you'll see a letter that he wrote to another ornithologist, like the same month being like, (laughs) Bonaparte is the worst. <laughs> and basically it was like they were accusing each other of of stealing each other's shit a lot. Like um I I think I think maybe the world of once you get into like a small niche world this kind of thing happens where mm-hmm. it's like who who discovered what? Right. And who is mm-hmm. and, and they're all trying to like catalog birds first. So he so Audubon sends like his because Bonaparte is a subscriber to his engraved plates. 
he sends him three plates and the first plate is named Stanley's Hawk. He calls it Stan Audubon calls it Stanley's Hawk. But Bonaparte had named that bird already. So Bonaparte had called the bird Cooper's Hawk after his friend Cooper. <laughs> and so he's really upset. He's like, you can't rename my bird. I already named it. <laughs> because they're classifying all these birds that haven't been classified by like British people before. Uh-huh. So they get to pick out the name that British people use for them. It's so funny. When you started this, I really thought that the the ornithological battle was going to be between Wilson and Audubon. But it really turns out that it's about Audubon and Bonaparte. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And it's weird because it's like there's there's Bonaparte versus Audubon and then there's Wilson's followers. (laughs) Yeah, like his legacy. Right. Versus Audubon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's, that's the feud. I think like. I mean, the the Academy of Natural Sciences does have Birds of America there. They have an original Birds of America on display, and they do a ceremonial page turning of it every day. Oh, neat. I tried to see it when I went. Um, I went once, but it's, like, in a special room. So I don't know. Maybe you have to, like, I don't know how that works, the ceremonial page turning. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can imagine, like, the ghost of Audubon, like, drifting by for the page charming, <laughs> like, really self-satisfied. Oh, my God. Being like, yeah, you could have had all my shit, but it's in other museums. Oh, uh, please, is the ghost of Audubon <laughs> in your book. <laughs> I mean, none of this is going to go in my book, really, because it's the wrong time period. But I just loved it so much, I had to, like, put it somewhere. Well, the ghost of Audubon could be the right time period, right? When did he die? <laughs> Yeah, it would definitely change the genre of my book if I put okay, the ghost right. of Audubon Fair. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> and now it's time for something I learned this week. What um, did you learn this week? <laughs> well, it's, it's what my dad learned this week. Okay. Um, as, what did your as dad you learn this week? I shouldn't put it all on, on you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one day we hope that people will write in about something they learned this week and it won't be all on my dad, though I think he's having a good time. I mean, I can't imagine not. (laughs) Like, I'm opening this doc and he has a few options for me to talk about, so it looks like he learned a fair amount this week. Um, So my dad listened to a TED Talk from a Philadelphia Inquirer reporter named Ronnie Polanezki about listening. Mm -hmm. So it is a listening meta thing. Um, We're not going to listen to the TED Talk. That would take way too long, Dad. Um, But he linked to it, and I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, So he has, he's mentioned some points that he took away from this TED Talk about listening. Um, to be a good listener, don't interrupt, which is like, 
it, when, my reaction to that is like, sure, but also guilt because I'm a huge interrupter. <laughs> well, I think that sometimes it feels like, I mean, I'm with you. I feel like sometimes it feels like it, it contributes to the momentum of the conversation. And sometimes it stops it cold. And it can be unclear every now and then in the moment which one you're participating in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I grew up, you grew up in a big family too, right? Like you had a few brothers. Yeah, two brothers. Two yeah. brothers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I grew up in a family of six. Oh. So, I mean, four, yeah. four, I was one of four siblings. So, like mm-hmm. a similar size family. And, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe it's because, like, I mean, we're half Italian. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like the talk at the dinner table, like, the way our family talks to each other is overlapping conversation. Like, multiple people sort of overlap and talk at once and talk over each other, like, a a fair amount. Mm -hmm. That's Um, definitely how my family is, too. And I feel like... I have tried to replicate that feeling because it 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 feels um, with my family at least like like really fun and like everybody's having a good time and the things are building. But I've also definitely had the experience of being like, oh, this isn't how this this isn't how this you know group of people communicates, and so it feels like it's yeah. I don't we I don't have a good <laughs> a good. Uh, we're not half Italian. We're half enthusiastic. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but I yeah. know exactly what you mean. Well, and maybe it has something to do with, like, comfort. I mean, for me it does. Maybe not for everybody. But if you're comfortable with somebody, with a group, then maybe you develop a sort of shorthand and, like, talking over each other is part of the experience yeah I I don't feel like I have any kind of scientific um (laughs) I don't feel like I have any kind of scientific ability to to like predict when it's gonna be the mode of a group or not but it because sometimes it feels like and I think that I think podcasts are a really interesting study in this too because it it happens on podcasts too where you you're listening to a podcast and you can feel it like um like building momentum as people are talking and over each other it's almost like talking with each other it's almost like the difference between um talking together and trying to um trying to 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 become the I don't know the main speaker you know what I mean yeah yeah and there's both like I mean we're both we both went to the same grad school we both met in workshops um Mm -hmm. there's often somebody in a workshop That He's talks a lot too to much. Say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or is like maybe unaware of the fact that like the workshop is 40% them talking. Mm-hmm. I live in fear of, of that because I'm 
when I get excited, I'm a big talker. I've definitely never thought that of you, though. I mean, not thought of you as a not not thought of you as a big talker, but been like, oh my gosh, Val, <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I've never felt that. <laughs> That's nice. I'm glad. I mean, I also I will say too, like I had so earlier this year, I got diagnosed as an adult with ADHD, um, which was a big, like, for many reasons, was a big, like, wow, my Did you fuck. suspect that? Yeah, but I not my whole life, only in, like, the past four to five years. And um, the pandemic made it a lot worse to the point where I was like, okay, I have to get help. Um, I have to, like, see if this is real or if, like, something else is going on with my brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And I found out that interrupting, like, a sort of lack of um, inhibition in conversation can be a a symptom of ADHD. Wow. So now I'm, like, hyper aware of it because I'm, like – I don't know. I guess I I didn't think of it as much. And also I'm on Zoom a lot for work. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly like, am I doing it too much? Am I doing it too much? Because our Mm -hmm. meetings, like some of our meetings are like, we're all talking about a manuscript we read and whether we should acquire it. And Mm -hmm. like someone will say something and it'll jog something for me. And I'll just like butt right in. But with Zoom, you know, there's like the extra trouble of like, uh, yeah, like like delays and like not just being with each other. I don't know. I think I, I'm in my head a little bit about talking too much. <laughs> well, so I'm curious if the diagnosis changed your systems. Now that you know that this is a symptom or a quality, I'll say maybe, um, of of ADHD. Has yeah. this made you kinder, like kinder to yourself? I'm wondering. Dude, it should, you know, shouldn't it? It's it really should. Me, <laughs> yeah. It's made me the opposite. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but that's a that's a good reframing because I I guess maybe I'm on like the road to kindness because I to think of it as an impulse control thing is interesting because I do feel like sometimes when I'm trying to hold back from saying something. It's hard. Like, it's a challenge. Um, and I don't know if, if someone who's neurotypical has that sort of feeling about it. Maybe they do. I mean, maybe it's hard for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, when a thought comes to me, I feel like it's going to go away soon if I don't say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, and I think I think that's, that's what's made me like I mean it's it's why I'm a writer too because also (laughs) like when I write stuff down then it's in on it's somewhere Mm -hmm. like if I ever have sometimes I have like when I have like a not even an argument but just like a really serious conversation that I have to get right with like my partner or um someone I'm fighting with 
I like I like write them a letter. Oh yeah. Because I'm so unable to speak when I'm feeling some kind of way and oh, I, I don't feel too. like words are coming to me. But like yeah, isn't that the yeah. human condition? I mean, yeah. it's hard to know what's ADHD and what isn't. Yeah. Some people are in, are so good at that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I'm not. I'm with you. I'm definitely in the letter writing, list writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you write to people when you need to put something a certain way, like in a fight or in a serious talk? Yeah. And I don't necessarily then give that to them, but I will, I can, I use it for myself to like, to keep me focused. <laughs> I'm going to run through the rest of his points real quick. Let go of being Right. Suspend your judgments. Your brain is creating judgments about anyone before they speak. And the TED Talk talks about how social media has hurt listening. It is not about talking and listening. It's about exposing and judging. It is hard to be a non-judgmental listener. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not news. Um, No, but we have really honed those skills of judgment lately. <laughs> yeah. Have you been are you you're not on social media much, are you? Oh, as little as possible. Yeah. Um I have I have tremendous anxiety about talking to a bunch of people that I can't see and who I don't know. Yeah, what kind of anxiety? Like anxiety like like a I social think- anxiety? I think one of my sort of default, I think my my main default anxiety is that I'm going to inadvertently hurt someone. And that, uh, you know, like since I was a kid, I mean, like this is old, old This is deep, deep (laughs) down, deep deep Mary (laughs) Wynn. I'm like, ah, should I post something about my book that's coming out? I really don't want to hurt the feelings of anybody who is maybe having a tough time in the industry. You know, like it, it, there's, there's, I, I will find a way to worry about anything. Yeah. Um, You should, I hope you've posted about your book coming out. I did. I did. But I made a rule with myself that I would post once on each platform and that was it. Okay. (laughs) And I mean, I, when, if, if somebody else said something nice about it, then I, then I liked it, but you know, I, I only like instigated one on each because I, I was like, this is, this is what I can handle right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that rule was, came from not wanting to hurt anyone who's, who's not publishing right now. I mean, I think it came from, from the, I mean, I think that that was sort of just an example. I think in general, putting anything on social media stresses me out. And so, uh, and so that was the rule that I made up for this book that uh, <laughs> really is, I figured it was like my special pandemic rules um, <laughs> so that I could um, be sort of a responsible author and let people know that the book was coming out but also um, not give myself an, like a, a lot of additional reasons to be anxious know, anxious yeah there's a part of me that's like, oh, like, I want you to be able to celebrate your accomplishments as much as possible, but that that might be coming from, like, you figured out how to do you. 
And like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're celebrating, I hope you're celebrating your accomplishments in other ways. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the pandemic is making everything a little bit harder. Yeah. It, everything like that we're, all of the things that we're like trying to continue with as normal, I think, you know, are of course <laughs> so much harder. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Book, so, virtual book you know, launches. This is, yeah. yeah. Virtual this book is, launches are the worst. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just those the, the the points that your dad said. The don't interrupt, don't um, interrupt. Uh, let go of being right and suspend your judgments. And mm-hmm. then he talked a bit about social media. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so and everyone, check out Mary Wynn's book. Um, well, both of uh, her books, and you can look them up at her website. Mar- is it marywinheider.com? Mm-hmm. Great. If you'd like to share something you learned this week, either while researching a project or just living your life, email me at researchholepodcast at gmail.com. I may read it in a future episode. So to say thank you so much for listening to Research Hole and be sure to check out the previous episode to learn all about Mary Wynn's books. I'm Val Howlett. Our music is by Joey Howlett. Our logo is